And we're off. I did want to share these little items with you, though. Robert, I didn't get the text until right before we were heading over, so um, I didn't know what we were going to do for the Ruth thing, but I knew we were going to do something. So that was great that Robert <laughs> was here with his crew. I wanted to share this with you, though. This is um, a mala that was made by one of our Sangha members, and it's got these beautiful beads, but it also has, at the end of it, is uh, a piece of Ruth's shawl that she used for meditation. So we have these um, that you'll see on occasion. Um, and I keep this, uh, I hang this near my bed, and often in the mornings I will just give it a touch to ground myself. Um, it's nice to have a part of Ruth. The other thing we have is, uh, this is also kept, uh, keep near my bed. This was given to me when we finished our teacher training. And this is a pagoda that has Ruth's ashes in it. And all the teachers received one of these. Uh, we have a big version on the altar in, uh, in the hall. And this is one of those things that, having met Ruth and been with Ruth and have her talk, she talked quite a bit about, as Robert does, about death and impermanence. And um, that grounding in the Dharma is pretty powerful when you have a teacher like that and can see the literal intergenerational passing of the Dharma from teacher to student. So uh, I'll leave these up here. And if you want to give it a little shake as a grounding in your Dharma, this is Ruth in real time. Mindfulness has been on my mind for the last few weeks. The last couple of weeks that we've been here, we've been doing a lot of technique-y stuff. We've been going over the actual practice of Vipassana. So I wanted to back up or move sideways and talk a little bit just about mindfulness um, and some things about mindfulness that have been on my mind and I'd like to share with you. When I was thinking about some of this stuff, I had remembered that a while back, I had seen this documentary on uh, this documentary that came out that was using this 3D photography and went inside some of the old or the oldest caves that we have with ritualized art and cave paintings. So 30,000 years old kind of thing. And it was this great documentary. And so it was done in three, it had this special camera. And so when you actually saw it, it really felt like you were actually inside these caves with this cave art. And it reminded me of how much I find that stuff fascinating from back in the day, like reading Joseph Campbell and stuff like that and seeing photographs of these caves with this sort of initial expression of human beings reflecting on what it is to be human in these, in these cave paintings. And what I found interesting was that on the walls of some of these caves, what they found was Oftentimes, they'd be pictures of animals, right? Because this would be food source and their environment, so it'd be drawings of animals. And sometimes it would be abstract images, like geometric designs that were obviously meaningful to them in some way. We don't know how they were meaningful, but meaningful enough that someone went into a cave and painted this on the wall. Uh, but the one that I really found fascinating, and this is something that's themed, so in all of these different caves in different locations in the world, there, there's these parts of caves where people have basically put a hand up and they've blown pigment through a, a tube, essentially, probably wood or some kind of pipe shape that they've done, and they've made the impression of their hand on the wall inside the cave. 
So in some of these caves, you'll see 20 or 30 hands that have all been etched in, in these caves that are 30,000 years old. Human beings thinking that that was meaningful to them to put their hand and to, to paint it on the cave. What I found, what I find interesting about that is it just reminds me that as far back as we go as humans, we are self-reflective creatures. We are asking ourselves, what is it to be a human being? What is it to be alive? What is our meaning and our purpose? And we're always reflecting on this as humans. And when I think of those hands, I'll send you guys a photo of it. When I think of those hands, to me, it's like someone reached out and said, I exist. I'm living here, right here, right now, in this time. Here I am. I am living. And 30,000 years later, that impression of that existence is still there of a human being. Said, here I am, alive, in this plane of reality. And here is my meaning, is that I'm going to put this on the wall and make my mark. I just find it beautiful that human beings have been expressing meaning and reflecting on meaning from the beginning and that we're called to do such a thing to ask ourselves what is it to be here what are we doing here what is our purpose right what does this mean for us how do we want to show up in the world and it's just a common thing that we do as human beings we're called and driven really to ask those questions and the reason or part of the reason that we ask those questions is because the type of awareness that human beings have human beings have the ability to be aware that we're aware. We have self-awareness. So we have this ability to take information in and then stop and say, huh, why is that happening? We have this ability to reflect on what it means to be experiencing things as a human being. And to me, that's fascinating because in the West, we tend to think of questions like, what am I and who am I? And what am I supposed to be doing with my life? What is my truest potential? And can I know what that true potential is, right? So we have these type of questions. And in the West, we're used to contemplating those questions intellectually, cognitively. So we sort of think about it. We get philosophy. I think, therefore, I am, this kind of thing, right? We think about it. In Dharma, we ask the question, what am I really? What is my true potential? Is it possible for me to be truly and authentically happy? And then the answer to that is we cultivate mindfulness. We bring awareness into the mix and we begin to go inward with awareness and we look to see what it's revealing. We look to see what mindfulness turned inward actually leads to. What is the discovery when we bring awareness inside and we ask that question, what's really going on? As Robert was saying, the simple things that remind us that we are existing, right? This body contact. So I like this idea that the Dharma asks and answers those questions through direct contact with awareness. Awareness is our vehicle to ask that question, and it's the way in the Dharma we try and answer it. We cultivate mindfulness, and we cultivate certain qualities of heart and mind, and we go inside, and we take this big adventure to see what lies in here and what are we really, in the hopes that we can find a sense of freedom and a sense of joy and a sense of compassion and we can, can, we can touch down on what might be a truer purpose or a higher purpose for what it is for us to be human, to really get inside and say, what is the true potential of what I am as a human being? What am I capable of? Oftentimes, teachers will talk about how in the West, we ask kind of what am I or who am I? 
But the Buddha kind of flips that question a little bit to the left or the right and says, what am I capable of becoming? What am I capable of becoming? Can I become more loving? Can I become more compassionate? Is there a possibility of becoming free? So it's a little bit different of uh, angle of question in the Dharma where we're asking, what is my inner capacity? If I bring mindfulness inside, what happens, right? What changes transpire? So in the Dharma, we ask, what happens if I cultivate things? What happens if I explore in a particular way and practice certain things? So it's the same exploration that human beings have been doing for tens of thousands of years, but it's done in a very particular way, right? It's done in a very particular way through awareness. So I wanted to talk about mindfulness in this context, right? And if you look at your teeter-totter, I wanted to explain why I've laid it out this way and what mindfulness is in regards to this journey of self-awareness and this journey of self-reflection of finding out who we are and what role does mindfulness play in the Dharma And what I wanted to do was read, I've got it here on these little handouts. I'm going to read this opening line of the Dhammapada. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of an ox. All experience is preceded by mind led by mind, made by mind. Speaker act with a peaceful mind and happiness follows like a never departing shadow. Speaker act with a peaceful mind and happiness follows like a never departing shadow. The Dhammapada is one of the most popular Buddhist texts. It's a very small one and it's written in these little stanzas, somewhat poetic stanzas. In the Dharma, consciousness comes first. Awareness is where we begin our journey that contact with the body, the contact with the heart-mind, the contact with sensations and breathing, the real-life energy made contact through awareness. Mindfulness is intentional awareness. Mindfulness is our ability to intentionally light up awareness and bring it somewhere, explore something. Mindfulness is the act of using awareness as a tool of exploration. That is how we use mindfulness. Mindfulness precedes everything. Consciousness precedes everything in the Dharma. So all of the things we do in the Dharma begin with wondering about, exploring, and touching down in awareness. This is where we start. We start with awareness itself as the foundation, as the cradle for all else that happens in the Dharma. If you look at this teeter-totter, the reason this is set up in this manner These are our enlightenment factors. So the Buddha talks about these as being the heart-mind qualities that we cultivate through our meditation practice. And we're asked to cultivate them, sustain them, and to balance them. And in that balance, we create the soil of liberation and the soil of freedom. So today I wanted to focus on the mindfulness part, this foundation, this thing that precedes everything in the Dharma, this use of awareness. The reason that mindfulness is not actually on the teeter-totter is really important. The teeter-totter is there because it's a scale where there's balance. 
If you look at it on one side, we have our investigation, our effort, and our rapture. These are considered stimulating factors, exciting factors in consciousness, energizing factors, and that's why it's tilted up. On the downward slope, we have tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. These are considered calming factors. These are relaxing factors in our meditation. Mindfulness is not on the teeter-totter. Mindfulness supports, connects, and touches everything else in our practice. Mindfulness is the ground out of which our, our practice springs. Mindfulness is self-awareness that is used intentionally for personal exploration. Mindfulness is underneath, or the soil out of which all of these other experiences spring, essentially. Mindfulness is also at the bottom and not on the teeter-totter because of another important thing about mindfulness that, it's, that we, don't often, we don't often understand until mindfulness becomes a little more mature. And that is, you can never have too much mindfulness. You can never OD on mindfulness. You can never have too much mindfulness. However, everything else on the teeter-totter, you can have too much of. And if you have too much of any of these qualities, you will experience agitation in your meditation. Mindfulness, though, the awareness factor, the clarity factor, you can never be too clear. You can't be overly clear of what's going on you know, in, in your heart, in your mind. Mindfulness is the only factor of our meditation that we can't have too much of. Everything else we have to keep an eye on. Everything else we have to cultivate and then learn to balance. Because if it's out of balance, we're going to have discontent and dissatisfaction in our heart-mind experience. So mindfulness, we just keep building until it becomes clear. And we use mindfulness as it touches everything else to bring all these other heart-mind qualities into balance. But mindfulness, you can't have, you can't have too much of it. Much of it. Another thing I wanted to point out about mindfulness is that mindfulness here is shown as a separate factor or a separate quality than equanimity. This is another huge distinction. Equanimity is non judgmental awareness, equanimity is often referred to as non-reactivity, non-judgmental awareness. Sometimes it's called ease. It's a sense of ease that one meets the world with. It's a sense of grace, meaning we accept what has arisen and we bring awareness to it. And the equanimous response is, I'm just going to hold here and be awake and aware and not change the experience. So equanimity is a non-changing response to what is arising in our heart and our mind. This can be in a meditation or in the world, something that arises in the world. Someone cuts you off on the freeway, relationship, someone says something not so kind. Do you bring equanimity to that moment and allow it to arise, but not have an aversive reaction? So you're like, I'm just going to let this be what it is. This thing is happening. So that's equanimity, that ease that we respond to the world with, both on and off the cushion. What's interesting is that in modern Dharma, Oftentimes when you hear about mindfulness, mindfulness is defined as a non-judgmental loving awareness, non-reactive awareness. This is, I Googled it the other day just to confirm that that's still what's out there. And there, all the definitions that came up were mindfulness is a non-judgmental, non-reactive 
loving awareness. It is, in certain circles, in traditional dharma, equanimity is non-judgmental, non-reactive awareness. Mindfulness is the knowing part. Mindfulness is that ability to hold something in mind. Equanimity is the decision not to react. It is a different muscle. Now, this is where the real important distinction lies, and I'm hoping I can make this clear, so give me a heads up if this is not clear. This is the part that's really important. Why does the Buddha separate equanimity from mindfulness? Why does he se separate the two as two separate things? Does anyone have any kind of like hint or suggestion on why it's separate? I'm thinking of wise action. Okay, speak to that. Or something in motion, it is not passive, let it happen, as would be. I mean, that would be my idea of what equanimity would be, would be just an allowing where maybe there's a, a, a place for wise action, like the kid's hand that's going to cross the street. And yes. That's wise action. Equanimity is, wow, nothing. Right. I mean, that's just my reaction. Yes, that is the primary reason that they're separate. The primary reason that mindfulness is separated from equanimity in traditional Dharma teachings is that is non-reaction always the skillful thing in our <coughs> life? Is not reacting always what's going to lead to compassion? Is non-reactivity always what's going to lead to freedom? Is non-reactivity always the most skillful action that's warranted in the moment. So if we define mindfulness and equanimity as one thing, if mindfulness means non-reaction, that means anytime I'm practicing mindfulness, I'm not react, I'm not do, it's always passive. Mindfulness becomes always passive if equanimity and mindfulness are bound together. So on a similar note, if, um, let's see how to put it. I had it and it completely vanished. That's awesome. <laughs> it was like there and it was like, oh, gone. Okay, what was I going to say? Equanimity, mindfulness. When you put them together, yes. So when you put them together, your only option is to not react. So if you go in, have a mindfulness practice, and equanimity is bound up into that, then anytime. So when you, when you hear about modern mindfulness training, the goal of modern mindfulness is to just be present because equanimity has been bound to it. So when you see things in trainings now when people teach mindfulness, they say mindfulness is non-judgmental awareness and I'm going to teach you mindfulness. What I end up teaching you is how to be present and not do anything, to watch things arise and pass away with no action. So that becomes an issue if action is needed in your practice. If you look at the teeter-totter, on the other side of equanimity, we have investigation. Investigation is the action part that we cultivate. You'll notice that it's on the exact opposite side of equanimity because they are brought into balance. Mindfulness, we bring mindfulness to our moments, right? And mindfulness becomes clear and one of the things that becomes clear is, is it skillful to be equanimous or is it skillful to act? Is it skillful to investigate what's going on here 
or is it skillful to let go? That is the balance between mindfulness, equanimity, and investigation. So what we see here is that mindfulness is the guide that balances these qualities. Mindfulness is always touching equanimity and always touching investigation. And what our skillful practice, as Doug was saying, skillful action is moment-to-moment mindfulness that says, is equanimity and letting go what is needed here to decrease the suffering, or do I need to engage in a particular way? On the cushion, it might look like this. I'm sitting in meditation. Let's say I'm doing body scanning. Oh, let's say I'm doing the spot checking that we've talked about. So I bring awareness to my chest, and I'm holding my chest in awareness, and that's where I'm keeping my energy. So there's my meditation. I've got awareness up, mindfulness. It's continuous. Concentration is starting to be developed. And then all of a sudden, there's a knee pain that starts to come up. And that's starting to feel a little disquieting. So I've got this pain in my knee that's starting to come up. But my intention is to be here in the chest to see sensations. Now, if equanimity is going to be practiced, I might just acknowledge it. I might label it and say, oh, knee pain, and keep keep where I'm at. I might just look at it and say, okay, that's arising. That's fine. It's not doing any damage or anything. It's just some discomfort. And then we come back. That would be an equanimous response, just allowing, oh, look, there's some knee discomfort. We're allowing that to arise. Or I might decide, wow, that's just really, that's really uncomfortable. It's like not doing harm, but like, I really want to see what's going on here. So we invoke investigation and we say, I'm going to investigate. And we move our awareness to that spot. And then we start looking at it and saying, what's going on here? We start looking and we start picking it apart. We start holding in different places. We might change our breathing and breathe into it. Different things that we might do. All of the action steps in mindfulness like that are investigation. We're investigating what's really going on here. And we're investigating if I change the way I relate to the knee pain, if I change the way I relate to it, what happens? That's where investigation science is called curiosity. I'm going to bring some curiosity here. If I change my breathing while holding my knee in awareness, does the knee pain change? That's investigation. That's skillful. Because what you're discovering is I can change my relationship to my knee through mindfulness and explore pain and discomfort in a completely different way. Two lessons I can learn. One, certain things in my life, if I bring equanimous energy to, it'll just go away. Pain will go away. But sometimes we need to explore. Sometimes we need to lean in and do something more active. And that's where our investigation factor comes in. If mindfulness and equanimity are combined, you can't balance the two when you're practicing if you're just non-reactive and watching things arise and pass, arise and pass. You're limited on the lessons that you learn if you're just doing the equanimity. Because investigation requires practice. So investigation is we go in and we start using different tools to change and explore and ask questions about what's going on there. At some point, we'll go into investigation with, with there's various tools that we use to engage in our meditation practice that are under this heading. And at some point, we'll talk about those types of things and how it works. But for now, just keep in mind that mindfulness has access to both of these qualities, the equanimity and the investigation. And we try to balance them in our practice. Another way of looking at it is in your actual life. Sometimes in our lives, something gets on our nerves, right? Maybe you have a friend, family member, coworker, or maybe it's 
your computer or your cell phone and it's just not doing what you want it to do and it's really agitating and you're starting to sense like, oh, this is dukkha. This is really bothering me. What are we going to bring to that experience? What are we going to bring to that moment? Are we going to acknowledge it as an arising, changing condition? Like, oh, it's impermanent and this thing is that and I'll just hold it and then just let it go. Or do we need to yell at the cell phone or talk to the person? Do we need to engage in something that's different than just the passivity? We might have to set a boundary with somebody that's an action. Being equanimous in relationships is not always the compassionate and skillful thing to do. Sometimes we have to say no. This needs to stop and we need to be firm in what, how we speak, how we talk, how we engage. Other times we have to say, well, what story am I telling about this person's behavior, right? What am I doing in my mind that's causing the suffering when they grind their teeth or snore or make a certain comment or whatever the case may be? Equanimity might be appropriate. But other times we all know that equanimity is not always equal to compassion. Sometimes we have to act and we have to act skillfully. And so that's where our skillful actions come in. So balancing those two in our practice. We practice on the cushion so that when we move off the cushion, we have things in our lives which are harsh and things that need to be addressed. We can then decide, okay, is this an equanimity moment or is this an investigation moment? Investigation also occurs in our day-to-day -day lives when we ask ourselves, how am I contributing to this suffering? How am I contributing to this moment of dukkha? Can I investigate how I'm responding? And can I change that, can I change that response and then see how it changes the suffering? One of the things that we do in the Dharma is we change our thinking, right? So instead of an attitude where we tell a story like, this shouldn't be happening, or that person shouldn't be doing this, we might approach it by saying, May this person be free from suffering. May I be free from suffering. We may change how we're thinking using investigation. And we might find a phrase or a term or an aphorism that when we say it, it changes our perspective of that person and suddenly the heart opens. And there's a spaciousness versus that contracting that may be happening prior. So all the active part of our meditation is under the investigation, which is why they're separate. It's why they're separated out. So we can play with them and we can move them around in our meditation and in our daily life. The second quote here, I'm gonna read this out loud. This is one of the famous passages where the Buddha describes the function of mindfulness. Just as the Royal Frontier Fortress has a gatekeeper, wise, competent, intelligent, to keep out those he doesn't know and to let in those he does. For the protection of those within and to ward off those without. In the same way, a disciple of the noble ones is mindful, endowed with excellent proficiency in mindfulness, remembering and recollecting what was said and done a long time ago. With mindfulness as his gatekeeper, the disciple of the noble ones abandons what is blameworthy, develops what is blameless, and looks after himself with purity. With mindfulness as his gatekeeper, the disciple of the noble ones abandons what is blameworthy, develops what is blameless, and looks after himself with purity. Slightly different than non-judgmental awareness. 
There's a lot going on here that's quite active. And that's why I put this in here so you can see mindfulness is quite active in how we use it. There's a few phrases here I wanted to highlight in light of this active aspect of mindfulness. The bottom one first, abandons what is blameworthy, develops what is blameless. I know I've talked about in the past that the Buddha defines happiness uh, as a blameless happiness, a happiness that does not harm ourselves and does not harm others. That acknowledgement is that we can do things that make us quote unquote happy, but we're harming ourselves in the process. So all of us engage in activities that we're like, oh, I like doing this activity, even though we know there's some harm that's done to ourselves, whether it's the extra cookie or whatever the case may be, the extra episode of something, we know that sometimes that which we call happiness is something that's actually on some level doing some harm. The Buddha defines the happiness that he was seeking as blameless, a blameless happiness. Non-harm to self, non-harm to others. So abandons what is blameworthy. That's what he's talking about. Abandoning types of happiness that are actually harming us. They could be pleasurable. He's not saying they're not fun. And he's not saying that it's something that, you know, is like overtly harmful. It's just something that in the end of the day, we know at some level, there is some hurt that's happening. Something could be a little more skillful. So blameworthy, something that is harmful, and then blameless, the type of happiness we're actually seeking. The Buddha never said that junk food and movies and sex and drugs and things like that are not forms of happiness. He just said they're not ultimate happiness and that they're not stable and ultimately nourishing and they won't lead to some ultimate satiation and contentment because it's sense-driven. It's, it's a hit at the sense doors. And so he never said, oh, this is bad. He said, this is not going to lead you to contentment. And so there's a distinction there. Like we're trying to look at the happiness and say, is this going to lead to my long-term well-being? Or is this, I'm planting seeds for short-term happiness that's going to be a little bit a hit of something pleasurable, but in the end, it's not going to lead to my freedom. It's not going to lead to something. So there is this background question that mindfulness presents, which is in this moment, what is skillful? In this moment, what can I do? What seeds can I plant that will lead to my long-term happiness and well-being? And what can I abandon? What can I let go of? Can I let go of the internal monologue that says I'm not good enough? Can I let go of that internal dialogue that says that person isn't good enough? Can we let go of those seeds that we continue to plant that cause us to roll in suffering? That is what mindfulness asks. Mindfulness asks us, to consider moment to moment, am I working to my own freedom? And will that freedom be something I can share with others? Or am I working towards just having more sense experience? Am I consuming sensations or am I creating freedom? Those are the way the Buddha looks at the way we use mindfulness. And mindfulness in this context asks that question. So it's not passive, it's quite active. It goes into the present moment and says, hey, what can I do here? that can lead to me being more loving? What can I do here that can lead me to be more intimately connected with my friends, my family, my children, my spouse? What can I do here that is active? The gatekeeper is this famous image because the gatekeeper 
is a protector. The gatekeeper is at the outside saying, should I let that in? Or wait, no, we're going to protect our sense doors and let's keep that one out. So mindfulness really does, as Doug was saying, mindfulness relates to our ethics. Mindfulness says, is this skillful? Is this, is this something that's positive in my life? So many times in our life, human beings have this amazing habit of rewarding themselves with things that are harmful to us. So do you ever give yourself a treat or reward that is the very thing that you know you're trying not to do? Like, okay, just this, I did great this week, so I'm going to reward myself by gaining the three pounds that I lost earlier in the week. This is one I do a lot. Or I'll, <laughs> I'll do something where I'm like, oh, I'm doing great with like not kind of overburdening my mind with sense media. Oh, I'm going to reward myself by watching three episodes of some, some, something. <laughs> so that gatekeeper is there to say, hey, wait, maybe two episodes versus six episodes. Like keep the other four episodes out and let's do something that perhaps is more nourishing in the long run for the soul. And so mindfulness is very active in saying what comes in and what goes out. Right? What is coming into our senses? What is coming into the heart and mind moment to moment? And let's keep an eye on that because so often we let the things in that are harmful to ourselves and harmful to others. So it's this watch person, this person at the gate that's really trying to keep an eye on things that are going in and out. That's why this image is so powerful. Mindfulness protects. Mindfulness says, look who's coming down the path. Am I going to respond to that person with equanimity or am I going to get out my investigation and see what's going on here, right? Is this thought train going to lead to love or is it going to lead to grudginess and resentment? And we catch it as it comes through the gate. And mindfulness is that basically a doorman, <laughs> for lack of a better word, and keeps people out. The other line in here that's really important I love how small little passages in the Dharma have like entire teachings of the whole Dharma embedded in them. Um, this one gets overlooked a lot, and this is also really important. Let's see, protection. So that was there. Ah, here it is. Proficiency in mindfulness, remembering and recollecting what was said and done a long time ago. Remembering and recollecting what was said and done a long time ago. When we're practicing mindfulness as a skill, what we're really doing is reminding the mind what's working to create happiness and what is not working to create happiness. Mindfulness, as the Buddha described it, is an actual function of memory. And it's easier for me to explain it in practical terms than to say it like that, but I'm going to Mindfulness is a type of memory. So for example, I'm meditating. I'm with my breathing. Mind just starts to wander off. Oh, tomorrow I have to do that thing. And then I got a plan. I got to get gas. And the mind starts doing that kind of thing. And you're awake to that moment. In that moment, you then remember that your mind is not supposed to be on your checklist. It's supposed to be at your breath. So when you wake up with mindfulness, the idea is to remember when you wake up what to do next, to bring the mind back, right? What's skillful now? Is it skillful to just think about the checklist or probably hold it and come back to breathing? Mindfulness is a type of remembering, reminding the mind to come back to the present. It's a memory thing. So the reason that this is in here with remembering and recollecting is that as we learn to practice, 
right? We need to remember what works in our practice so we can continue to cultivate it. And we have to remember what didn't work last time I was sitting here in this knee pain arose. What did I do last time that helped with the suffering? What didn't I try? Mindfulness invites us to ask some questions about what we're experiencing in the present moment related to our suffering, related to our pain or our emotional state. So for example, I know from my own meditation or on and off the cushion, when anxiety arises, it really helps me to do body sweeping because that energy tends to dissipate. So I know from experience that when the dukkha of anxiety arises, if I switch my awareness and I relate to it through body sweeping, in a matter of minutes, I can tone it down at least a few notches. I have to remember that that's what's skillful for me, for my body, for my mind, heart. I need to remember. That's mindfulness. Remembering what I did before when this thing happened. It's a memory, right? Oh, that's right. When I start feeling angry towards this person, if I let it go this far, oh, now it's going to be a grudge. Can I catch myself before that happens? Can I remember to catch myself? Those are the kind of things we do with mindfulness. And it's just important to know that mindfulness has that quality, that when we're on the cushion, we're thinking about stuff. There's two types of thinking. There's thinking that we're used to with, with words, right? Where we think about things and it's very word, right? I'm going to the store. Here's my list. I want an avocado. I need eggs. I need this uh, tofu. That's a type of thinking where words are driving. But we're relating to the world and evaluating the world constantly beneath language. We're making decisions. We're remembering things. And words don't have to be there for us to decide, am I going to bring my awareness from my knee to my nose? You don't have to say that, but you are making a decision to bring your awareness from one part to the other. You're making a decision to do that. You've made a skillful decision. You've discerned that I'm moving my awareness. Maybe I'm going to move to loving kindness practice in a couple minutes. It's a decision you make, but it's not done in words necessarily. Mindfulness makes decisions from moment to moment. What's going to be skillful right now? Maybe I need to take three long, slow, deep breaths. Maybe I'm feeling tension in my chest. And so you might, mindfulness might decide that's the better thing in this moment to decrease my suffering. So mindfulness, as I was saying earlier, my point of all of these things is to remind you and to let you know that mindfulness is very active. It's a very active thing that we're doing in meditation. Even the passive parts of meditation take effort and energy. So letting go is a mindful decision that takes energy and effort and a decision. There's lots of things going on moment to moment with mindfulness uh, beyond just the letting go part, uh, beyond the equanimity. And when we, when we can become comfortable with mindfulness as an activity, then our toolbox for meditation really begins to open up. When we can really be comfortable with knowing that you have the option of investigating or the option of being passive. You've got multiple choice now. It's not just true or false. You've got three or four things that you can do for the pain, for the heartache, for the relationship difficulty. You've got more things that you can engage in with your practice. And so you'll start to see, oh, I've got all kinds of tools that can decrease my suffering with mindfulness as its base. When you're in meditation, if you're going to sit in meditation, and you decide to invoke equanimity as a base of your practice. And what I mean by that is if you decide to sit with a non-focused awareness and just let whatever arises or passes away, and you're just going to be there and I'm just going to watch what arises and what passes away. 
make sure you're doing it intentionally. In this moment, why am I intending to practice in that way? What is the reason? Is it because, whatever the reason may be, it could be all kinds of different reasons, but oftentimes students for years will practice where they just sit and watch things arise and pass away without invoking this quality of mindfulness that has to make a decision in this moment how is doing that contributing to my long-term happiness and well-being? How in this moment is that what is skillful? And you would want to figure out for yourself moment to moment, what is needed here in my practice to cultivate the freedom that I'm looking for? So oftentimes we do a non-reaction, but we kind of just do it by default. We don't do it for any reason necessarily. We don't necessarily say to ourselves, you know, I, I think I need to cultivate some equanimity. So I'm going to really just sit here and see if I can be present with what's arising. And I'm going to use this time to be really equanimous to whatever things may arise and pass away. We don't think of it in those, in those terms. So next time you're going to sit down to practice something where there's letting go, I would invite you to consult mindfulness and ask, is letting go what's warranted here in this moment? Is this the best skillful thing for me and my heart in this moment? Or might there be something else that I might need to do? And try it out and see what your heart says when you ask yourself what is in this moment skillful or not skillful, skillful in regards to your mindfulness. When meditation becomes pleasurable, it's easy to sit when there's pain and stuff because you have something to work on. But when pleasure arises in meditation, which is our middle factors here, which is our rapture and concentration, or, sorry, well, yeah, that's part of it, but uh, rapture and tranquility. When these pleasure factors arise in meditation, sometimes it's difficult for students, especially advanced students, to move past that because this is just something that we're cultivating, but we have to learn to not get attached to even pleasure in meditation because meditation can get really pleasurable. And so when pleasure arises in meditation, we then have to explore, why am I so attached to this pleasure? Why am I attached to jhana? Why am I attached to the inside the meditation? In the beginning, it's easy not to be attached to knee pain. No one wants to be craving. But when sukha and piti, as we say in the Pali, when these pleasurable factors start arising in meditation, then there's a grasping for more of that. And that becomes its own, its own challenge. And working through pleasure in meditation helps with the pleasure in the world to become less attached and less triggered. Like you said, the gravitational pull towards the item, especially when we're not balanced or we're not centered, is we all know what that's like to lose the balance of our minds I, uh, and be pulled. I, I was in a, in a conversation with someone recently. I may have talked about this in a previous day, but um, because of all my years of meditation, it takes a lot of... For something to really get me angry, it takes it, it has to be repetitive. I have to be exposed to the thing over and over and over again in a short duration or continuously uh, in order for that balance, for order for me to see the balance of my mind turning to, ang to real anger towards the situation. And recently I was with a person and I found myself getting really angry. And the, the mindfulness that was present I thought to myself, even in the moment, oh my God, I have not been angry at another human being like this in a long time. And I actually felt this sort of quiver inside 
which was the limit of my mindfulness, where I really <laughs> felt like if I remain with this person, I'm going to say something way like I've reached I've reached my skill set with this person, <laughs> and I'm about to say something very <laughs> unskillful. And <laughs> Wait, what did you say? I did have the awareness, but I did raise my voice and began to yell at this person, which is completely out of how I see myself as a person. And so at that point, I apologize. It was like, I don't like the way this conversation is going. So I think we should, we should stop this conversation. But the mindfulness of watching the peak is like, oh my gosh, here it comes. Oh my gosh, I'm going to like say something really nasty to this other human being. I've completely lost my mindfulness. I've got nothing holding. Gatekeeper was on a smoke break. I was like, I was having all kinds of angry things like, oh, maybe I should just let this, let this one loose and see what happens. You were 20 feet from the door on a smoke break. It was like there, I could see them off to the side, but they weren't going to, everyone, someone's trying to sneak in the gate and they're like, eh, just let that one through. We'll see what happens. So that's what the that's the active part of mindfulness is being able to keep things out. And everyone who meditates knows that over time you begin to see when you're agitated and you really get more self-control and you really are able to keep that kind of stuff from coming out and putting your foot in your mouth or raising your voice and even though you may feel the anger you can bring some equanimity and bring skillful speech uh, to the situation. Well, thank you for your kind attention. Thanks for taking part in this ritual of our dear, beloved Ruth.